Hello and welcome to A Rabbi and a Philosopher Walk into a Podcast. I'm Sol Worth and I'm joined by Rabbi Jonas Ngolem. Thank you for tuning in to our very first ever episode. The topic of today's episode is going to be introducing ourselves and talking about some of our similarities and differences. So, Jonasson, why don't you start us off with telling us a little bit about your background? Right. Well, I was brought up as an Orthodox Jewish person. I went to Chabad schools in London, subsequently studied in equivalent universities in France, England, Canada, and America. And later on married and came back to England and took up a position here in Sheffield, where I've been for the last 30, nearly 31 years. And part of my job is that I spend time with students, which is how you and I came to be in discussion. It is indeed. I'm from an Orthodox background, which means that I see, as I've said, I mean that I see things very much within the framework of my faith and the sort of people I mix with and have mixed with throughout my life. But I value a lot in hearing the sort of views that I don't hold or don't follow, don't believe in. But I feel it's necessary to listen to them, to hear them. And I know that you come from a different background. I shall leave that up to you to define what kind of background you are or some person you are. And throughout discussions around the Friday night table as we celebrate the Sabbath, emerged a certain um, conversation. There was a conversation that we managed to engender. And so I thought it would be more interesting to discover more about you. How else am I going to learn? How am I going to learn if I only ever have conversations with other Orthodox Jews? So I know from the outset that you and I are going to have very different opinions about things. But I want to hear them because I want to be informed and understand where you're coming from. So I've described myself as an Orthodox Jew. How would you describe yourself? Well, I come from a liberal Jewish upbringing. I have never in my life been particularly uh, active. I had a bar mitzvah. Uh, and I'm, there is more discussion to be had about that uh, at some point, I'm sure, potentially later in this episode. I was probably the most active within my congregation when I used to co-run the musical Shabbat services with the wonderful Rabbi Tanya Sagnovich, sadly now left our congregation. That was something which I which I enjoyed doing, which, to be completely honest with you, I did more to do with my community and uh, cultural values than any religious significance of the service itself. I'm a philosophy student at the University of Sheffield, and as you said, I, uh, I came to know you by attending your Friday night dinners that you so graciously host. And yeah, as you said, we got into conversation and there seemed to be something interesting about it. So what this podcast is going to be, uh, tell me if you, if you think... Uh, you disagree with any of the following statements, but I think it's going to be philosophical and theological discussion, hopefully coming from two quite different perspectives, but 
in which one of the interesting things about it is that we are united by our similarity as Jews, yet uh, would you say it would be fair to say that we are fairly fairly far apart on the spectrum of what it means to be Jewish? I think that's a very fair comment. I mean, you say you are from a liberal Jewish upbringing. I don't know what that means. What does liberal Jewish mean? Yeah, so... I want it to be very clear from the outset that I am not a spokesperson for liberal Judaism. Uh, I'm no authority figure on the subject, and uh, there are much better people than me to ask. Uh, But from my understanding, it's a branch of progressive Judaism, uh, similarly to reform, uh, specifically, I believe, an English branch that tends to aim for a version of Judaism with more progressive ideals. One of the things in liberal Judaism that is an interesting reform uh, that orthodoxy doesn't have is that liberal Judaism removes any male or otherwise gendered pronouns when referring to God. Um, And that's not to say that we use gender neutral pronouns. Instead, liberal Judaism chooses not to ever use pronouns to refer to God and only refers to God in the direct. So God, you are this rather than he is this. One of the other features of liberal Judaism is that ideologically it is reformist in that uh, we don't follow strict uh, rules of Leviticus and the rest of the Torah when it comes to things like, first of all, social ideologies like homosexuality. We have female rabbis, so we don't follow a lot of Uh, orthodox rabbinical laws and we also don't follow specific religious teachings nearly as strictly as you would in orthodoxy in that not everyone in our synagogue eats kosher the synagogue is not gender segregated the services are often non-traditional in many ways and practices like tefillin uh, don't tend to happen within liberal judaism for anyone that's not aware of tefillin, would you like to give a brief overview of what that means? Well, tefillin are the binding of two boxes that have leather straps threaded through them. One goes on the arm, somewhere on the biceps. The second is on the head, and the straps will go around the, the heads. So this will show that you are binding yourself to God. Because inside those boxes, which are made out of leather, are four paragraphs that discuss this commandment. And the only difference being that the one on the hand is written for four on one piece of parchment, and the one in the head is written for separate pieces of parchment. And a Jew will put on these, a Jewish man will put on these every weekday. That is to say, he won't put them on on the Sabbath morning or on a festival morning, but he'll put them on month, Sunday to Friday. And this is like one of the real big mitzvahs and big commandments of the, of the Torah. A mitzvah being? A commandment, a, a law that we're supposed to do. So what you're telling me is, if I'm picking up what you're saying, that the Torah for you is is not binding? I mean, where, where's your book? Yes. So the Torah is still primary scripture within liberal Judaism. Um, but the day-to-day prayer books, or the, the siddur, are written differently. Those are those are, for example, where we where we remove the gendered pronouns, 
and the Torah is not necessarily seen as the direct word of God. Uh, it's understood within liberal Judaism uh, that there may have been human influence, uh, it may have been written exclusively by humans, and that we tend to base the overall ideology around what we choose to be the core messages in the same way that lots of other reform religion does. Uh, so whereas you might have Catholics who tend to try and take as close to a literal interpretation of both the Old and New Testament as possible, obviously accounting for Jesus's reforms to the Old Testament uh, in the New Testament. And then you have Church of England, Methodist, you know, other more reformed churches that allow, for example, female priests. In the same way as that, liberal Judaism acknowledges the importance and value of the Torah, but doesn't suggest that it is infallible or beyond scriptural interpretation. And as such, we look at scripture like Leviticus 18.22, I believe, which is the scripture that uh, most, most outright prohibits homosexuality. And we understand that that was a product of its time. There are also sociological and psychological understandings of things that happened in the Torah, which we now understand may not be as necessary. For example, there are several alternative hypotheses as to why the laws of kashrut or kosher exist. For anyone who's not aware of what that is, uh, they are rules in Judaism about what you can and cannot eat, uh, similar but not the same as halal within Islam, the most prominent and well-known kosher law being you cannot eat pork. For a lot of liberal Jews, it's understood that that may not have been God's exact word, but it may have been a sociological factor of the time. And I can explain that theory in more detail if you'd like, if that's something that would be interesting to you. Yeah, well, I mean, we said at the beginning that we, we, we acknowledge that we're going to have diverging views, and that's probably... That's, that's, you got off to a good start there. You got because, off to a good start. Because that is, you know, quite, that goes way off what, what the Orthodox Jews uh, hold as far as the, the Torah is concerned. I'm also aware that really, if I'm going to start the this sort of um, theological argument with you, it, it's going to be a bit unfair because I'm, I'm supposed to be a rabbi. I really, if I should have this, I should attack a, a, a liberal rabbi. And I use the word attack because it was it would end up that way. But the trouble is, Sol, that I like you, so we are we are friends. So I'm not going to have a go at you, and I'm not going to. So I'll just tell you that I, I, I don't agree with that, and um, I we would never say that. We would say that the, the entire Torah is the word of God, um, but that wouldn't be something that's just packed out of a hat. It would be there's a logical sequence to follow in order to understand why that is the case. How do you know that this is the word of God? And that would be an interesting discussion itself. You might remember Friday night that we had, we had we talked about this at length a little bit. I think it must have been a few weeks ago because it was the anniversary. It was the reading of the Ten Commandments. I, I'm, I'm curious to see how do you pick and choose which bits you decide are more relevant to your time and which are not. I mean, if you did that, you basically would rewrite the whole faith and they would you wouldn't have any tradition at all other than chicken soup which we all acknowledge is is totally uh across the board it, it, you know it, you, you we cannot get rid of that whatever 
across the board. Everyone agrees chicken soup's great. Yeah, chicken soup. If you've never had... Eat chicken soup, yeah. If there's anyone out there who's never had proper chicken soup cooked by a Jewish mother, find yourself some Jewish friends and get yourself some Jewish chicken soup. It is like nothing else. Yeah, like nothing else, yeah. Jewish penicillin, the cure for all ills without exception. I mean, COVID came and went, but chicken soup stayed, (laughs) right? Why bother with vaccines when there's chicken bother, soup? Yeah, of course, yeah, a little bit, of, and you know, intravenous chicken soup, and, <laughs> yeah. and then, then you'll be safe. Uh, but how would you? Um, is that a fair question to ask you? Do you feel? You, I think you, it's. I think it's a very fair question. I think um, I will. I will again reiterate the fact that I, like you say, I'm not an authority figure in liberal Judaism, nor am I the one who's done any of these interpretations. I can give you an overall understanding of, uh, from my philosophical background of how scriptural interpretation works and how it tends to, to, be, uh, to be done in practice. What I will say, first of all, is I think it would be overly idealistic of you to say that your faith also does not contain any scriptural interpretation or picking and choosing parts. For example, a huge amount of rabbinic law came into circulation a great deal of time after the primary scripture was revealed for example things like chicken being considered meat and therefore falling under the cash front laws were introduced in rabbinic teachings later than the primary scripture Um, so it's first of all worth mentioning that any orthodox religion in the modern day no matter how religiously you think you're sticking to the scripture will always have interpretation partially because things like electricity, technology, have only been invented since then. So while Catholicism, for example, is often seen as the most fundamentally accurate form of Christianity and that it sticks to the most teachings, it also is hugely heavily influenced by thinkers like St. Augustine, who made major scriptural interpretations in the few hundred years after Christianity came to fruition. And without those, the religion as we know it today would not exist. Similarly, things like the papal encyclicals within the Catholic Church were major, essentially, interpretations and clarifications of the primary scripture. Now, you ask how liberal Judaism specifically does it. I will be completely honest with you. I can't tell you the exact framework by which liberal Judaism specifically chooses its reforms. One of the ways that we do it, I believe, comes from a place of attempting to follow the guiding principles rather than specific laws and rules as given to us. I think you will admit, if you tried to follow every law given to us in Leviticus, exactly as it was, you wouldn't be able to in the modern day. Because, for example, there are penances for certain sins that involve animal sacrifice, which is now illegal. So, even for you, there are some parts of Leviticus that aren't followed because they're simply not practical. Now, liberal Judaism obviously takes that a great deal further in uh, really having it up for debate for the whole book. But one of the things that I would say is potentially the the guiding principles that the Torah and, to be honest with you, all Abrahamic faith puts forward, things like the divine right of the individual, things like your free will, your right to exist as an individual, 
they didn't we didn't really see those existing as an ideal too much before Abrahamic faith came along. Uh, and just as a purely historical and sociological study, that's a really interesting and important part of how religion influenced the development of the Western world. Now, in liberal Judaism, we put things like respect and love as those guiding principles. And there's a big focus on things like tikkun olam, which, uh, which is to heal the world, for anyone who didn't know. Um, and so there's a focus on doing charity work and helping people. And I think to sort of to summarize the overall ideal, I would say that it's a move away from prescriptive rules to trying to live your life the way that you think is right, not just from following a word in a book that you don't necessarily have evidence for and using some of your own rational ability to analyse which of that is right. It's worth also saying that if you believe that that rational ability comes from God because you are made in, in God's image, then you may well believe that actually what you are doing is the most morally correct thing and the most religiously correct thing because why would God give us the ability to analyse the texts if not to be able to and to keep updating them? And it does appear that not everything in the Old Testament is by any means, not all of it is by any means applicable today. What would you, what would you, what would you think to that idea? Well, that would that goes uh, like many miles away from um, Orthodox Judaism because we would say the following: everything in the Torah is sacred. Everything in the Torah is the word of God as transmitted via Moses, his faithful servant. The interpretation of the rabbis that you refer to early on in your piece, those are not a free-for-all. You simply do what you want, and you've decided that this is no longer applicable, so out it goes. The rabbis' interpretation, that too, was part of the oral tradition that came together with the written tradition that transmitted itself over many generations until at some point it was at risk of being forgotten. So Rabbi Judah, the prince, who was somebody from the Mishnah period, so we're going about, about 2,300 years ago, approximately, can't, can't be certain exactly, began to copy this down. So we have the Mishnah and then we have the Talmud, which is a, a, a vast book full of fascinating details within the faith, laws of how various commandments, some of the commandments that you refer to, finish that, the commandment of kosher, is just a scant verse as to how we slaughter our animals to make them kosher. Uh, and there's a few verses devoted to what species of animals you're allowed to have and those you can't. Other than that, there's not a great deal about it, but it's a major part of Jewish faith, and Jews all over the world still keep kosher, even if they're not that orthodox. And every single part of that has its parameters when it exists. So you being brought down about sacrificial offerings, the sacrificial offerings in the book that says, offer this sacrifice, says also that that only applies when you have a temple and you could do that. No temple, no sacrifices. So the same God that told me to bring the sacrifice also said, don't do it if you haven't got the temple. That's why it's been written out of history at the moment. All the other laws, as long as they have not 
got a subtext that says this does or doesn't apply in this situation, then there will they will still be in existence. Some of the laws can be specific to a particular place. So there are certain laws governing agriculture that apply to Israel that don't apply outside of Israel. So that too is a restriction that God himself placed on it. He says Israel is a holy land. Back in uh, it, it, back in the times when it was conquered by the by Joshua and so on, it became a holy land, and therefore the produce from there has a certain sanctity to it. Therefore, you must do X, Y, and Z. Many of those things were tithes, tithes for the poor. So that has a good a good result as far as the rest of the community is concerned. So they had some benefit from it. So you know, charity is written into the Torah at a very basic level there. Um, but if it doesn't apply now, and the interpretation that you said about the rabbis, that follows strict, strict interpretational lines, which they too are tradition. So the rabbis have not got the, not got the ability to get rid of something just because they decide it's no longer applicable. It has to follow the same rules that God set. And one of the things that God says in the book of, the, of Deuteronomy is that the rabbis have the right, as long as they're following the those they're trained in how to do this to interpret the law and that you must follow what they say so if you like any rabbinical law is backed by the the boss the good lord in the first place who gave them the right to do that otherwise we wouldn't be able to interpret anything and there are various rules to this for instance you might i might give you a few examples that rabbis can temporarily suspend a law as long as they don't write it out of the faith so right now in the, in the in the Torah readings that are going on throughout the world every Saturday, a portion of the Bible is read. The portion that we're reading these last last week, this week, and the few a couple of weeks to come as well, is all about building of the tabernacle. This tabernacle stood in the desert and was a portable temple. You put it up, you took it down as the Jews moved around. They moved forty two times over the course of the forty years that they sojourned in the des- desert. So that's what a tabernacle is. That's tough. It's a portable temple, a put to a Lego temple. Sure. The Jewish people came into Israel with something more structural, and the final structure, the the big one, was the temple in Jerusalem, and everybody knows that that was built, destroyed, and then rebuilt again. And that was a stone structure, had a permanent place, and from that day on, was that's the only temple. You cannot have any other place. It's only that too is a scriptural verse. And all of these things were, were, were uh, again, are written as part of the five books of Moses are written in how that applies, were, what these laws are. And they'll always be found in these books somewhere. There's a verse that tells you that. Interestingly, when the first temple was inaugurated, it was a real big bang. They made a lot of celebrations and there was a lot of rejoicing in that. And King Solomon chose to have a week of celebrations upon the opening of the temple, which spanned the day of Yom Kippur. Celebration accompanies eating and drinking. Ask any Jew how you celebrate. You say the Chaim, on, which is the equivalent, the Jewish equivalent of cheers, on something that is got a, a saint whiff of alcohol to it. You eat, you drink, and I'm sure chicken soup would have featured somewhere in that venue as well. But if you're going to have Yom Kippur, everybody knows Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's the most solemn and most holiest day of the year on which Jews fast. Yet here he is having a feast on the day. 
So he used a a bylaw in the system that says you may temporarily suspend a lot as long as don't write it out. So he didn't write the Yom Kippur out of the book. He just said, this year, we're going to have chicken soup. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. It's never been repeated. And he was allowed to do that. Now, if he'd come along and said, God has cancelled Yom Kippur, that's it, then we would have dethroned him. We would have said, no, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't cancel Yom Kippur. You can just suspend it, but you can't cancel it. There are other examples of, of that. Again, there are other things which did get cancelled, but again, within the framework of how you're allowed to interpret all. For instance, um, before you get to Yom Kippur, you have Rosh Hashanah, which are two days. So the first and the second of the month of Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and the tenth of that month is Yom Kippur. That's how the system goes. And to anybody, a Jewish candidate, you'll see Rosh Hashanah, day one, day two, and day ten is Yom Kippur. Fine. The Rosh Hashanah is, is celebrates the in the coming in of the new year without getting heavy on the Yom Kippur, which is more about atonement. Rosh Hashanah doesn't focus on that so much. It won't focus on beginning of the new year. We recognize God as our king, and we uh, resolve to serve him in the best way possible. Those two days of Rosh Hashanah can fall on a number of days of the week. One of those could be Shabbat, Shabbat being the Sabbath day. If that would happen, the first day would be the Sabbath be a Saturday, the second day will be a Sunday. Okay, so where's your problem? No, no problem. I'll tell you what the issue is. The Rosh Hashanah, the, the central theme of that festival is that we will blow notes, blow sounds on a ram's horn called a shofar. Good book says you do this on Rosh Hashanah. Problem. If the first day of Rosh Hashanah is on a Saturday, the laws of Saturday override the laws of Rosh Hashanah, which means that you cannot carry items in the street from your home to, say, the synagogue or to another home. You don't carry on the Sabbath in the street. In my own home, I can carry. In the synagogue, this is my home, I can carry. But from the, my home to the synagogue, I have to walk through the street. I cannot carry. So Rabbi said, well, if you're going to blow the chauffeur, if you're going to sound that ram's horn on the Saturday, you might come to take your chauffeur, your ram's horn, from your home and bring it to the synagogue because you're eager to do the mitzvah. And what's the problem with that? So, well, if you do that, you're going to be walking through the streets. You've carried your ram's horn. You've committed a sin in order to fulfill the mitzvah, to fulfill the commandment. Can't do that. So they therefore came in up and they said, right, from now on, if... Rosh Hashanah falls on Saturday, you don't blow on the Saturday, you blow on the Sunday. You blow on the Sunday anyhow, but whereas if it fell on any day, two days a week, it would be a both days, in this case, really the second day. So they suspended that law, not only suspended, they cancelled it, but they had a right, they could do that because it fits into a category of commandments that says you're supposed to do something, and if you fail to do it, you haven't actually committed a sin, you just failed to do the mitzvah. The rabbis can make you fail. So it's interesting that you bring up that specific example, because if, if I'm correct here, there are several areas around the world, most famously in New York, but I believe there's also one in Manchester, where wire has been strung up around uh, a portion of the city, and it has been, it has been blessed in, in such a way in which the whole area now falls underneath the category of 
of the home or it falls under the category of just one one type of area. And you are allowed to carry. And you are allowed to carry in those areas. So that's a good question. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I choke for you to admit it, but I'm impressed. So Remind me of the name of those. It's called an Eruf. Uh, Eruf means joining together, mixing together. And it's effectively saying that the Hatai air is to be considered as one domain, one personal domain, in which case I can carry it. May I just say the answer to that would be is if you lived in one of those areas, then theoretically that's what you could do. But we have to legislate in a way that co- that covers the vast majority community that doesn't have that. So the, the, the sort of the, the core of my question there was, if this is God's commandment to do so, and only on very specific examples of where we have other commandments, uh, such as Rosh Hashanah, or we, or we decide even that we can't carry on Rosh Hashanah because it is not, it's not so much a sin to not do something as it is to do something. And that leads back to a whole interesting philosophical discussion of action versus inaction. But I guess the question I would ask then is, what differentiates putting up an ARAF in an area from any other version of an interpretation that makes life easier for you because that interpretation was one that we have if you like was given a mount sinai as a legitimate interpretation so if a rabbi comes along and says this thou shalt not do is no longer applicable we say to him you cannot make that interpretation so is the idea of an era of in primary scripture is it in the torah at the same point or at a maybe even at a later point um, as to when we are given the commandment that you must not carry on the Sabbath. It's not in the scripture in written form, but it forms part of the oral law as to be found in the Talmud, same as all the other laws. So in some sense, some might consider it to be an interpretation. Yeah, I would agree it's an interpretation. And I would say, yes, you can interpret the Torah, but only where God has given you permission to do so and said this is subject to your interpretation. So then I can go ahead and do that. He ain't said you can interpret how you like that particular law of carrying that was given over to us to interpret. Um, any mitzvah, any commandment which requires you to do something, the rabbis can suspend that law if it's a doing thing by saying, sit still and do nothing. So you haven't actually transgressed, you just failed to do inaction, as you referred to earlier. The rabbis cannot come along and say, you know what that law about pork, which you mentioned earlier, say that doesn't apply anymore. They can't do that because that's that will involve allowing something to be done, which is a transgression, and that was not a long interpretation of land. So basically, to summarize it, the rabbis have been given specific rules how and when they can interpret, and you will always be able to check that against the rules to see if the interpretation is correct, because if it isn't correct, they would have been written out of history. So only those ones which fit those interpretational lines are out. Whereas if you were to just get rid of a law, I like to fill in that you say, it, it, there's nothing in there that allows me to write that out of out of the system. At least that's the way an orthodoxy would see that. One potential reason, perhaps, that that is different in liberal Judaism is that, as I mentioned earlier, many liberal Jews, uh, perhaps even... Uh, the ideology as a whole, but I don't want to speak for the ideology as a whole. Many liberal Jews believe that the Torah is not infallible and is not the direct word of God. And while a great deal of liberal Jews will believe in God, 
and believe that God exists and that God gave us the scripture, they perhaps believe that the scripture itself was written by man um, and therefore is fallible and is a product of its time. And I guess the key difference there would be when you no longer believe that the word of God is directly written in the Torah, then your ability to interpret it is heightened. Now, I will also mention, which I didn't mention earlier, while I was brought up in liberal Judaism, uh, I now identify more as secular as far as it goes to the religious aspect of Judaism. Um, my specific stance on theism is a term which I don't know if it necessarily actually exists. It's two terms that exist that I've put together, uh, which is that I term myself deist agnostic. Agnosticism, for those who don't know, is somewhat a midpoint between theism and atheism. Agnosticism is basically saying, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I wouldn't be so bold as to posit that I can definitely know either way. Deism is a form of theism which says that there is a belief in God, but a belief in God without revealed scripture. Now, personally, through my philosophical studies and research, I have found myself at a conclusion where I do not believe in the possibility of a God who reveals laws to us through scripture and expects us to follow them blindly. I think that as a concept, it falls apart when you look deeper into it. And one of the main problems with it being is that many people claim to have revealed scripture. Many people claim that revealed scripture is the truth of God. And many people back up their revealed scripture only with other parts of revealed scripture. And the problem with that is you get into a situation in which no one's view can be fundamentally proven over someone else's, and it comes down to purely a matter of choice or upbringing as to which scripture you follow somewhat blindly. Now, I would never be so bold as to say that there is no possibility of a God existing. I personally have other theories of my own personal metaphysics, and at some point I'm sure we will do creation and cosmology and how we think the universe came to be. Uh, and that will be a really interesting discussion. I look forward to it greatly. But I would never be so bold as to say that I think it couldn't have been a God or the God that you believe in. Uh, but I would say that I find the idea of a God who reveals himself to us through scripture and tells us what we must do to be a relatively incoherent idea and one that falls apart under further analysis and i find that specifically the abrahamic god in many places is at the very least not loving and at the very most actively malicious and that's why i find it incredibly hard to even entertain the possibility of believing in such a god We are going to have to leave it there today. 
but we will pick up with this discussion in our next episode which will be about what is god and the cosmological argument or creation argument thank you so much for tuning in to our very first episode of our podcast we really appreciate you listening if you have any thoughts or feedback don't hesitate to get in touch and let us know and we really hope you'll tune back in for the next episode